Amen. It's glorious to sing together. And believe me, there's nothing more encouraging than hearing the voice of the saints sing together, not only to God in praise, but to one another in encouragement and in faith. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find uh, Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29, continuing through the life of Jacob together. Looking at Genesis chapter 29, and we'll read from verse 1 to verse 30. The Word of God says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdress. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is because it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. 
and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is it that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed his week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to be to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of God. Have you ever thought about why the Bible is here? Why God gave it to us? And why not, if he was going to give the Bible to us, just hurry along to that New Testament part? Why have us read stories like this and give things like this to us? Well, we know first that the Bible is God's revelation of himself, right? He spoke through the mouths and pens of human authors and perfectly preserved the message about himself to the world. Peter put it this way. Here's what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For in no prophecy, he's talking about scripture, for no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So men speaking, but God was ultimately the one speaking through them. And this is actually the same understanding of the scriptures that Jesus had. It's important to ask, if we want to know what the Bible is, shouldn't we consider what Jesus thought about it? I mean, he died and rose again from the dead, so I think his opinion on just about anything settles it, right? And so Jesus rose again from the dead, and he believed that the word on the page was God's very speech to us. Here's what Jesus said to, these, to this group called the Sadducees. As he was debating with them about the resurrection from the dead, here's what he said. Have you not read what was said to you by God? You see it? And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? And then he goes on to quote from the book of Genesis. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus took the Bible seriously, and that means we as his followers are to take the Bible seriously. And that's what we try to do. We believe that it is infallible and inerrant, and that's why we pour over phrase by phrase, section by section, working through books like Genesis as we have been together. But besides what the Bible is, have we ever given much thought to what it should do in us, what it should do in our lives? There are lots of verses you could go to. Psalm 119 says the Bible directs our path. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that it equips us for every good work. And you may have heard this if you've grown up in church. What do they say? The Bible is the guidebook to life, right? And there's there's definitely truth in that. But the Bible's meant to be even more than simply God's revelation of himself and a guidebook for how to live. What if God's word was meant not simply to reveal God to us and reveal a godly way to live, but 
it is actually meant to transform us. That it's the only book that as you read it, it reads you. (laughs) That as you come to it, you walk away from it changed and different. This is actually what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He recounts tons of these examples from the Old Testament, and then he says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Think about it. The Bible is full of examples, positive examples of how to know God and love our neighbor, and negative examples of how sin will destroy your life. And the negative examples, the things we come to and go, how in the world is this in here, were recorded so that we might learn from their example and not desire the evil that they desired. This book is meant to not just come to your head, but transform your heart and your affections that we might learn from their example and our heart might be changed. And I think this is certainly the case in this section of Genesis. <laughs> Through these chapters, it's really one continuous story, but we've been breaking it up and we'll continue to break it up over the next few weeks. But it's interesting that one thing should leap off the page to us as we've been reading about Jacob's life, and it's a warning against deception. See, if you remember, Jacob's name means deceiver, and he's been living up to that, hasn't he? He's been deceiving all sorts of people. But in chapter 29, the shoe is on the other foot as the deceiver gets deceived. As the title of the message says today, Jacob gets Jacobed. (laughs) He gets fooled now, and he's going to experience in the midst of this deception a conflict between an older and a younger sibling, just as he instigated between himself and Esau. He's about to be in the middle of a sister fight that he did not realize he was going to get himself into. So first, we see that Jacob, while on this journey from from home, has gained some self-confidence, and not the good kind of self-confidence. Either Jacob, we encounter at the beginning of this chapter, is cocky. He's got a swagger. He's got this self-reliance that simply shouldn't mark a person of faith. Consider first Jacob's self-confidence. Jacob's self-confidence. Jacob left home, we learned, at 60 years old. Imagine that. First time leaving your house and you're 60 years old. And it was while we can tell the first time he's ever left his family's property. Last week, Jacob encountered God in a dream as he was sleeping on a rock in the middle of nowhere. And now he's traveled hundreds of miles on foot alone to a place he's never been. And let's see how this impacted him. Look at verse 1. And then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that field the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. It's important to stop and see how similar this is to something we read before. 
Remember in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham sent a servant to find a wife for Isaac, and he comes to a well very similar to this. So here we see Jacob being sent to find a wife from the tribe of Abraham, just like Abraham sent his servant to the same place to find a wife for Isaac, and they both come to a well. And in fact, if you compare the chapters, there's a ton of similarities between them, but their response couldn't be more different. Look at verse 4. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We're from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. So see it. Jacob's traveled all this way. And one of the first people he encounters not only knows Nahor, which is who he's looking for, that's family to Abraham, but they're traveling with his single and very available daughter, Rachel. He's like, I'm going to find this family, and I'm going to try to get a wife from him. And you mean his very attractive single daughter is over there? I mean, he he gets exactly what he wants the first time around. Jacob's found who he's been sent to find. This is good news, and God should be praised. This is actually similar, again, to what happens to Abraham's servant. Abraham's servant, very first time with Isaac, runs in to who he needs to find. And the servant gave praise to God for the way he orchestrated everything together. But Jacob doesn't seem anywhere in this chapter to give mind to God at all. The silence should be deafening to us. Jacob doesn't even make reference to the fact that he's traveled all this way and God has just dropped who he's looking for right in his lap. Abraham's servant praised God at every point on his journey from the well he found to his encounter with the family. Jacob doesn't do that. And I think this is a sign that Jacob has gained a sort of sinful self-confidence a self-reliance, an attitude that God didn't do this. I did this. I accomplished this. He has an attitude that receives all praise, but doesn't give any praise to the one who's worthy of it. So as we consider Jacob's self-confidence, let's consider first Jacob's self-confidence in his independence in his independence. He is now independent from his family. He's off on his own, and now he thinks he's pretty hot stuff. He thinks he's just got it, right? And I think there's some incredible application to any young person here who's within the next three years of moving out of your parents' house. Think about this. Jacob's first time away, and he has survived a lot. Many of you may understand Like most college students and young adults, your first time out of the house, you're probably going to be sleeping on a rock, much like Jacob was. (laughs) You're going to be scared and not know where to go. He wasn't sure where he was going or what he was doing. And yet, despite all of that, God promised him that he would return home and that he would be with him. But Jacob let all of this make him arrogant, He'd been able to take care of himself for a while. He learned to do laundry. And it led him now to believe he was the source of his own hope. Since he's made it this far by himself, he didn't need nobody. He doesn't need anybody's help, right? He can can get pizza delivered to himself without any help. He doesn't need anybody. And friends, many of you are going to be tempted to think the same thing. 
And yet, you must hold fast to the recognition that everything you have comes from God. Whether it's the job you have, the money it gives you, if you're going to college or going away to college, the education you're going to get, that is a gift from God. God is its author and its source. And the New Testament book of James puts this reality this way. Here's what he says, James 1.16. Do not be deceived. So it says, you can be easily deceived by this. Don't do it, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Jake, James knew, and Jacob illustrates, the temptation of those who were newly independent from their parents to pursue independence from God. Hear the warning here. Sometimes we can equate freedom from our earthly authority as freedom from all authority, even heavenly ones. Hear me. None of us have ever been or will ever be independent from God. You cannot escape the sovereign king and ruler of the universe. So instead of taking all the credit like Jacob did, we should begin to foster an attitude of thankfulness, recognition, praise, and gratitude. Do you know that's why Christians, at least many Christian families, pray before they eat? It's not just some ritual. And again, if you're ever going to do it just for some ritual, Jesus says that's not what prayer is ever meant to be. But he says, if you're going to do it, it is meant to be something that produces in your heart thankfulness and says, God, you are the provider and we're not. Not just something that you do because you want everybody in the restaurant to know those people went to church today. That's not the point, right? It's to give God credit, and it's for you to be transformed. Jacob was self-confident due to his independence. And it gets even clearer. Look at verse 7. Look what happens here. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. This brings us to our second point. Jacob was self-confident in his independence, but he also was self-confident in his intelligence. In his intelligence. Think about this. Jacob comes to these shepherds And he begins to tell the shepherds how they need to properly shepherd their sheep. What does Jacob know about caring for livestock? Nothing. What does he know about caring for them on a long journey? Nothing. And yet he's offering advice to others. Jacob, by analogy, just put his first futon together in his college dorm, and now he's trying to tell the PhDs in shepherding how to shepherd. He's like, I know y'all have done this for a living, but let me give you some advice. Here's how you need to do this. And the warning is to be careful not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Instead of telling them what to do, Jacob really should have got his hands dirty, taken the posture of a servant, and asked questions and helped them along the way. And maybe he might have learned what they were doing rather than telling them, well, this isn't the time for you to bring your livestock here. I know everything about all of this. Let me make another point of application here because 
I think social media has made it where we think we have to know everything about everything. And when we see a photo of somebody shepherding wrong, we need to tell them, you're shepherding wrong. I read a couple articles on this. You obviously don't know what you're doing. And when we see something we don't think's true, we just have to call it fake news right there as it is, right? Because it really matters what we think about it. You don't have to know everything about everything. Take that burden off your shoulders. Take a deep breath. Isn't it great? You don't have to have an opinion on everything that's going on in the world. I've been practicing this in my own life, and it's freeing to simply go, I don't know. And that isn't glorifying ignorance on important issues, but it is saying that there are things that may be more complicated than a Facebook comment can solve. Maybe I need more than 150 characters on Twitter to solve the world's problems, right? Maybe there's some complicated issues that don't have as clear answers as we would like for them to have. Everybody out there in the world on social media and otherwise thinks they're an expert on political science, economics, Middle Eastern affairs, and racial issues just because they watched a special on the news or they've got somebody on their feed that they like, or, or they're listening to some friend of theirs with some half-baked theories. <laughs> Friends, let me say this. We as Christians need to resist the urge to try to be omniscient. We need to resist the urge to try to be all-knowing, because hear me, we are not God. You are not God. You don't know the answer to everything, and you never will, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that being informed is a bad thing, but that information and knowledge are terrible gods that will consume you and will produce pride rather than humility. Paul says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Jacob had become self-confident and self-reliant, in his own intelligence. He'd become a know-it-all, trying to tell these shepherds how they need to shepherd when he had zero life experience in shepherding. And finally, we see his self-confidence from his independence to his, to his intelligence. Now look at his interactions. Look, finally, his self-confidence in his interactions. Look, look at verse 9. Jacob's a real piece of work here. He really is. Well, he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. I do know how to say that word, even though a second ago, it just would not come out at all. A shepherdess, right? Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother, Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So Rachel enters the scene in much a similar way that Rebekah entered into Isaac's life, right? Jacob saw Rachel, who we hear later was very attractive to his eye, and now he jumps in, he rolls away the stone, and he kisses her right there on the spot. 
homebody Jacob thing seems some macho man, right? I'm going to roll this stone. I'm going to kiss this girl right on the spot. He's going to impress her. And he doesn't even have to ask her out on a date. He just does it. It's like, come on, Jacob, you know? And then he, he introduces himself, and he makes his intentions clear. And look at this. Look at these interactions. Jacob was a grown man, and he's acting like what most of us would reduce down to an immature high school student, right? He's trying, he's doing everything he can to just impress this girl, kiss this girl, just make it all about her, and self-reliant in himself, in his knowledge, in his own strength, and in his own perceived awesomeness. Let me say that if you live like Jacob does, you will live a life that God rejects. The Bible tells us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That Jacob, we saw in the last chapter, was humbled when God revealed himself to him on a rock in the middle of nowhere. But now that he has in his own mind arrived, he's going to live in direct opposition to how he should live as a recipient of of the promise. This isn't how you live if God has promised to give you land, seed, and blessing. He promised to be with him and to bring him back into his homeland. This is someone relying on his own strength and living for his own praise. And Jacob is going to learn this lesson the hard way. Jacob will be humbled because the deceiver is going to be deceived. And we turn from Jacob's self-confidence now to Laban's scheme. Laban's scheme. Look at this. We get this guy named Laban. We've, we've met him a little earlier, actually, and, and he's going to enter this scene in verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So Laban comes to Jacob. He embraces him. He gives him a familial greeting. It was normal for family to kiss each other back in that day, so don't make too much out of that. And he brings him over. And in verse 14, he quotes directly from Genesis chapter 2 that would typically talk about the bond of marriage. And he says, Jacob, you're my bone and my flesh. We're family. Stay with me a month. And now you're probably beginning to read this situation and go, this is really unusual. This whole thing is very unusual, right? This is a sort of ancient marriage proposal, right? And Jacob is proposing to Rachel who he really just met. And we, you've, you've kind of seen the way the chapter has been describing Laban's relationship and Jacob's relationship. And you come to find out that Rachel is in fact Jacob's cousin. So what's there, right? Laban is Jacob's uncle and Rachel is his daughter. And that's, that's weird, isn't it? Right? It, I hope it is to folks here. It, it certainly is weird to us, but in the ancient world, it's rather common, even for the tribes of Abraham, for them to marry within the family. This is even very common in parts of the world today. It really is. People do this all over. And in fact, I'm not joking here. I Googled this. So just give some justification. I Googled this and it was for a sermon, right? First cousin marriage is actually still legal in Tennessee and many other southern states right now. It's, again, it's weird. I'm not, I'm not saying you should go do this, definitely not, but I'm saying that there are some very complicated cultural issues around this that 
we just aren't going to give a lot of thought to, and that's okay, right? This is weird and unusual to us in our 21st century eyes, and that's okay. But he's doing this whole proposal here, and he introduces himself, and then he comes and he stays with the family. This was typical in the ancient world. The man, when he's proposing to the daughter, would come and he would stay with them for a while, get to know them. They'd kind of figure out that the guy isn't an axe murderer, you know, and kind of see how he is behind closed doors, right? And so they would do that for a time, and Laban is using it to lay a trap. Laban's a sharp guy, and he's about to out Jacob, Jacob. And look what he does. Laban's scheme is going to lead to this point in your notes, Jacob's slavery. Jacob's slavery. Look at verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, that escalated quickly. He's staying with Laban with the intention of marrying his daughter, and now he's talking about serving him or or being a slave to him and getting a wage. I thought he was there to become a son-in-law, not an employee, How would you feel about this arrangement, dad's in the room? If the guy's going to be with your daughter, he's got to work for you seven years before he could ever marry her. Hard labor. Come do hard labor, right, in order to marry my daughter. Some some dads are getting some ideas, so I'm sorry, right? I'm going to pre-apologize to some of the young ladies in the room, right? They've got some ideas. But Jacob agrees to this crazy enough, and but he's only got one thing on his mind. Look at verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man, Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Now, the passage contrasts Leah and Rachel. We don't know exactly what it means that Rachel, that Leah has weak eyes, but we do see it clear that Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance. And this is an echo of how Rebecca, Jacob's mom, was described earlier in Genesis. And so Laban talks Jacob into serving him for seven years for Rachel. In the midst of this, we see a young and in love Jacob, and this is really sweet, right? It says that the seven years felt like just days to him because he loves her so much, right? That's kind of warm and fuzzy, right? But this truly is a disastrous deal, (laughs) He enters in to seven years of slavery, and and Israelites would actually later enter into a form of bond servanthood for seven years in order to pay off a debt. That was something that later Israelites would do that I think might be echoed here. But all those bond servants in Israel were actually set free every seven years during the year of Jubilee. So they would have been set free, but Laban doesn't simply get seven years of labor out of Jacob. He's going to get many decades out of him. He, 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 he gets Jacob into slavery, but then his scheme involves Jacob's surprise. Jacob's surprise. See this, Jacob is about to have a really rough night. 
well, really rough next morning, more, more like it. But we come to the end of the seven years, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is complete. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. So Jacob is going to get his wife, so Laban's going to throw the biggest party imaginable. Going to get all these people together, have this big reception, get them married, and it gets even better. Verse 23, but in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? So Jacob goes to this wedding, to his own wedding, to this big reception, and goes home with the wrong woman. How in the world does that happen? Let me offer some thoughts, because I know you're curious, right? So, because the number one rule of any wedding, if you didn't know, men, Go home with the bride and not her sister, right? Rule number one of any successful wedding. How does this happen? Think about first, in these days, there wasn't electricity. And so if they partied late into the night, it got dark, right? He might not have fully been able to see who he was dealing with. Second, partner that with the fact that women in these days wore heavy veils over themselves. And finally, Jacob's a bit of a frat boy, got caught up in the party, probably had a lot to drink, and you combine darkness, veil, and lots of drinking, and you've got all kinds of problems, right? And he takes the wrong woman home with him and has a surprise the next morning, doesn't he? He's got a surprise. And notice Jacob's question, what is this you have done to me? Why have you literally Jacobed me? Why have you deceived me? Jacob the deceiver becomes Jacob the deceived. And it's interesting, verse 23 actually echoes the Garden of Eden. As the fruit was taken and given to Adam, so Leah was taken and given to Jacob because this whole mishap is going to impact Jacob and the nations to come through him for generations to come. And Laban just sticks the knife right in the heart. Verse 26, look at this. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Ooh, that had to hurt. Think about it. At this moment, Jacob's whole deception of Esau likely came rushing back in his mind because Jacob, the younger, stole from his older brother. And though Jacob loved the younger, he was now given the older. And so Jacob, rather than honor his wife and stay faithful to her, he and Laban pursue further sin, thinking they can solve this somehow. Verse 27, complete the week of this one and we'll give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed his week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So this is interesting. So Jacob now has two wives, like his brother Esau, who he seemed to think he was so much better than, right? He's now in con- he was in conflict with his brother, and now he's in the middle of this conflict between these two sisters. 
And Jacob, if you remember, knew how it was to be in the middle of favoritism. Remember, his mother and father played favorites. Jacob was loved by Rebekah, and Esau was loved by Isaac. And Jacob does the same thing with his brides. He should have known better. <laughs> Jacob has every reason to know better. So Jacob does what, Esau, what Isaac did to him and what Rebekah did to Esau. He favors one over the other. Consider this, Jacob is defrauded by a family scheme just as De- Jacob defrauded his brother with a family scheme. The shoe is on the other foot, and see this in your notes. The warning of this chapter is this, your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. You may think you can get away with it, but you do reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. It might be decades later. It may even be an eternity, but you truly do reap what you sow. This whole passage is a warning about the consequences of sin. The past sins of Jacob catch up to him, and his own lusts lead him into slavery. He walked with a swagger, lived what he perceived to be his best life now, full of drink and driven by desire, and he ended up in what we'll, in what we'll see is a total of 20 years of slavery. And Laban is a wicked slave master, but let me tell you, sin is far worse than Laban is. Sin, whatever sin might have a hold of your life, is far worse than Laban. This seemed like a great deal to Jacob for a bit, and now look at where he is. That, isn't that so often how sin works? The promise looks so great. Just serve me these seven years. And then he's 20 years later, two wives and a whole mess on his hand. On his hands, right? But there is a better way. Recall at the beginning, I said that these things were written down for us as examples that we might not desire what they did. We should that there's a better way, there's a better desire we should get from this. And the lesson is this, that humility is the pathway to life. Humility is the pathway to life. The way to the top begins at the bottom. Jacob needed to realize that it was when he was sleeping in the wilderness with a rock as his pillow, that was when his true life with God would begin and flourish. That humanity was the path, or humility was the path of hope, and it was only by getting low that any of us can reach higher. And Jacob is an example of what happens when you forsake humility. And consider that humility, isn't it commended for us in the work of Jesus that the king of the universe, God in flesh, would come to dwell among us as a poor carpenter. That he would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That he would humble himself, die in the place of sinners. And let me say, Jesus, it bears our reaping. He ultimately sows what we reap. He's the one who took upon himself what we have done. And he rose again to be exalted to the right hand of God for Jesus, the path was a grave before a throne. It was a cross before a crown. And our path as followers of Jesus is the same path of humility. We can't be expected to have our best life now, right in the moment, despite what the popular books 
might tell you. Genesis 29 is a call to humble ourselves and to stop trying to do life in our own strength and power, but to come to the Father through faith in Jesus and repentance of our sin. This is the only way we can find life only through dying, dying to ourselves. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. This is the unpopular Jesus. People don't put this on notebooks and stickers and all that stuff, right? Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Get Jesus kicked off of social media. Get him canceled, right, for saying things like this. A hard saying, but nonetheless true. That the path of a disciple is a path of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following after him. And the apostle John offers us incredible hope. 1 John 1, 9. Look at this. If we confess our sins. In other words, if we humble ourselves, confess our need, see our sins as God sees them, and say what he says about them. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see that? That if we would humble ourselves, confess our need and look to Jesus we would find forgiveness and newness of life. That's part of the reason Jesus came and humbled himself, that we might humble ourselves to find forgiveness and newness of life. But we also humble ourselves with the promise of resurrection because Jesus' humility isn't the end of the story. His grave wasn't his final home, and in Christ, friends, it won't be yours either. There was a cross, but then there was a crown. There was humility in dying to self, but then there is everlasting life for those who humble ourselves in repentance and faith in Christ. Life will be ours. And so the encouragement, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus this morning, humbled yourselves, you can do that right where you are. You can talk to me or somebody here this morning, and we'd love to talk to you more. But it's also a reminder for us as we live in a world that loves pride. It's everywhere. They have whole parades about it, don't they? We love to pursue pride. And yet the Bible would say that pride comes before the fall and that we rather should pursue humility, repentance, and faith. Hear these words from 1 Peter 5, 6 before we pray and sing together. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Let's pray and sing together. Father God, you are good to us. We're thankful that you sent your son and that he has humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for our sake. Lord, I pray we would learn from Jacob's example. I pray that we would not desire evil as he did and as Laban did, as this whole family schemed together. Lord, may we learn how sin can destroy our life. And may we learn that even in the midst of this, God wasn't done with Jacob. Things were going to get worse. He was going to be taken through this suffering and through this pruning and through this fire, but he was going to come out the other side, no longer Jacob the deceiver, but Israel, the father of a nation. And so, Lord, I pray that you would see, that you would have us to see our need for you, 
crush us under the weight of our sin. Help us to see our great need before you. And then help us to run, run to you in faith and hope and repentance, clinging to the promise that if we humble ourselves at the right time, we're told you will exalt us. Thank you for your word and for its clarity to us. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing.
another benediction. Just a note, if you are visiting with us, we have a welcome table uh, right outside this front door. We would love to connect with you. There's a Get Connected card there. You can fill out online or fill out here. And if you fill it out and leave it with us, we've got a little gift for you. We'd love to follow up with you, see how we can pray for you and just meet you. And, uh, and if you're returning uh, to Crossroads from uh, COVID concerns and everything, and I have not gotten a chance to meet you, uh, I would love to do so. So please grab me while you're here, or you can find uh, my number and contact info on the bulletin. We'd love, I'd love to meet you and uh, introduce myself. So we close our service with a benediction, a blessing from God's word. This from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work.